Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. Reading from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure waters. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So a week or two uh, ago, uh, I overheard uh, a parent uh, talking about how over the holidays uh, they were going to take uh, their daughter to Disneyland. And uh, Disneyland is a place a lot of people go during the holidays. In fact, if you can avoid Disneyland, that's a good time to avoid it, right? That's when everybody comes from Alaska and everywhere else uh, to, en- to enjoy the, quote, the magic kingdom, right? Um, but as I was listening to that, it just caused me to reflect upon some memories I had. I, I grew up uh, probably about an hour's drive away from Disneyland. And as you can imagine, um, growing up in Southern California and having Disneyland so accessible, it, it became one of like my favorite places. Uh, I can remember some significant things happened at Disneyland. Uh, I remember being a very little boy and my first memory is of the mule ride. And my mom dressed me up. It was the summertime. I think it was probably around my birthday. And I had a pair of sandals on. And uh, I had shorts. And I had like a Hawaiian, little Hawaiian shirt on. And I can remember going on the mule ride. The reason I remember it is just the coarse hair of the coat of the mule rubbing against my thighs and my leg. I can still feel it. I can still smell it, the mule ride, right? And it was just very tactile. It was a, a, a just, I remember that so well. And then a few years later, I can remember my mom, a single mom. I, I, I can't even imagine what it cost, you know, her to take me to Disneyland. But I can remember uh, my favorite ride was the Cars, the Utopia ride. Anybody remember that, Ben, that? Yeah? And it was like you could actually get behind the wheel. And uh, you could drive, you know, at least you thought you could. And I remember I'd get off of that ride, and my mom would be waiting on a bench under a tree, kind of an eyesight of the ride. And I'd go to her, and she'd tear out of a ticket book. In those days, they had ticket books. I think that was probably a C uh, or a D ticket, right? She'd hand it to me, and I'd go back on. I'd get off. She'd tear another ticket off. And she would just sit there, and I I can never forget, as I would come to her, she'd have this big smile on her face because it just gave her so much joy to see me 
uh, enjoying uh, driving the cars. Uh, and then I got a little bit older, of course, and, and there's high school. Grad night in high school was at Disneyland. They shut down Disneyland from 11 o'clock at night till 6 in the morning, and all the graduating seniors from various high schools would go and just enjoy themselves. Very significant. And then I remember, uh, I think maybe the second date I ever had with Lori, I took her to Disneyland. Okay? So Disneyland has a very significant I didn't put on the mule ride. It was gone, right? It was gone. <laughs> but she'd marry a mule later on, so, yeah, okay. So, um, uh, very significant, very significant thing to me. Uh, in fact, as I was thinking about it, all these memories that, that come back into your mind, I was thinking about those ticket books I was telling you about. In fact, I want to show you one right here. Anybody remember those? You paid for admission, and then you bought your ticket book, and then you had A, B, C, D, and E tickets. Uh, you know, E was like the highly treasured value. Back in those days, there was just a couple E rides, like the Matterhorn bobsleds, the Jungle Cruise. Uh, later on came the Pirates of the Caribbean, the, the rockets that you would go around in circles in. Those were E tickets. Uh, and then, as I said, you know, the cars were probably a D or a C and so on and so forth. So you get these ticket books. And uh, when you left, if you didn't use all your tickets, you kept them. In fact, if you had several visits, you would just keep your unused tickets. So the next time you came, you didn't have to pay for tickets because you had your unused tickets. You just paid for admission into the park. Things were so much simpler then than the $140 entrance fee now. Okay, um, so when I was very little, my mom had a drawer in our bedroom, and she had, with a rubber band, a bunch of these leftover ticket books. They were just banded together, and they were in this drawer. And I called that the Disney drawer, because I knew when we got ready to go to Disneyland, mom would go in the drawer, she'd get the tickets, and man, that was the ticket to just having a great time. And uh, so there was a Disney drawer, and I shared a room with my mom, and I had an older sister. She had her own room. Uh, and when my mom was at work, my older sister would watch me, okay, reluctantly so. And so one day I was probably being um, just, you know, a, a wonderful little brother, and uh, she'd had enough of me. So what she did was she took me to the bedroom where my mom and I shared. She took the doorknob and she reversed it and locked it from the outside and locked me in the room, okay, just to get some peace and quiet. And uh, I remember that very, very, um, I remember very clearly. And I was bored, and there I was locked in the room. And she was going to leave me there until my mom came home from work. So it was probably middle or late afternoon. Well, I remembered the Disney drawer. And I got into that drawer. I pulled out that bundle of tickets. And suddenly, in my little childish imagination, I was transported to the Magic Kingdom. And I began to imagine the various rides that you would go on. In fact, on the ticket, they would actually say what rides they were good for. And I must have been old enough I was starting to read because I could read what rides you could get with the tickets. And basically, I already knew anyway. 
And I began to pretend like I was a ticket taker at Disneyland. And I go, oh, here, let me have this ticket. And I tear it in half and I throw it down. And I'd rip another one out of the book and I tear it in half and throw it down. I was like the ticket taker taking tickets at Disneyland. I was just having a grand old time. Uh, until my mom came home. And my sister rushed to let me out of the room and to try to reverse the lock on the door and all that kind of stuff. Well, anyway, when they came into the room, there were all of these tickets from the ticket books that had been ripped in half, scattered all over the bedroom. Yes, guilty as charged, okay? I did it, my innocent little childish imagination. I was taking tickets at, at Disneyland. Well, you can imagine. It caused quite a commotion. Uh, my mother was more understanding than my sister because... Next slide, please. I had made sure to tear in half all of the e-tickets. Now, the e-tickets were the tickets for grown-ups or for adults, right? They're the things that the big kids wanted to do at Disneyland. And, of course, my sister, in her mind, saw all those torn-up e-tickets, and she thought about all the jungle cruises, all the Matterhorns, all the small worlds that she'd never get to go on because of her little brother. Okay? And I can remember her saying uh, to my mother, look at that. Look at all the wasted rides. Look at all the, the, the wasted opportunity to have a great time at Disneyland. Scattered on the bedroom floor, okay? The e-ticket. That's what she was really concerned about. You see, the e-ticket was a ticket to the most thrilling rides. It was the things that, like the Matterhorn, when you got into, you had to hold on to uh, for your, quote, safety. And so those were the things she was most upset about. And I was thinking about that conversation uh, with that parent taking their child to Disneyland, thinking about my own experiences at Disneyland, and thinking about that afternoon when in my childish boredom I took and destroyed ticket book after ticket book after ticket book, but made sure that every single e-coupon was torn in half. I remember that so clearly. Now, what does that have to do with our scripture today? Well, there is an e-ticket, if you will, for those who are Christ followers. And the e in the e-ticket stands for the word encouragement. Now, there are a few things in the Christian life you can do that are more thrilling, that have a greater impact, that are more life-changing than when you commit yourself to encouraging somebody else in their Christian walk. It's like the valued e-ticket at Disneyland. I'm telling you, encouraging others in their faith, encouraging them during times in which they're struggling, times of adversity, times of uncertainty, encouraging them during all of that is thrilling because you have an opportunity to see God work through you and have an immediate impact on somebody's heart and somebody's life. So write this down, will you? That encouragement is the e-ticket, right, for followers of Christ. Because it gives you the thrill of being used by God in a spectacular way. In a way, really, that's for grown-up 
followers of Christ. And I say grown up because you have to be mature enough to take your eyes and your mind off yourself and your own circumstances long enough, right, to be other-centered, to think about what other people are going through, what their walk is like, what their need is for encouragement in the moment. It means you have to pay attention. You have to be alert. You have to be looking this way and this way. You have to be hearing. And then you have to be praying, asking God to place you at the right place, at the right time with the right people to give his encouragement to someone who's in need. Now, here's the good news. You know those e-ticket rides at Disneyland? They used to have a sign that says, you must be this tall. Do you remember those? I can remember being a little guy and wanting to go on that Matterhorn so bad, but I'd get up there and go, okay, maybe this is the year. And I'd get to that sign and just be like, maybe that much shorter. And I couldn't wait till I was big enough, tall enough, to go on that e-ticket ride. Here's the good news. There's no height requirement for followers of Jesus to be people who dispense encouragement to others. Those who could really take the e-ticket, if you will, of the Christian faith, that's encouragement, and be used by God to encourage others in their faith. Everyone can do it. Every single person here can do it. Now, can you imagine what a place the church would be if every single person in the church committed themselves to encouraging others? Man, who wouldn't want to come to church? Right? I mean, it's a place where you get built up, where you get edified, where you get strengthened, where you get encouraged to go out and live your life in the ultimate connection, life together with Christ in the center. The thrill of encouragement. Well, that's what our passage is about today. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19 through uh, 25 today, it really is a call to persevere in the faith. The author of the book of Hebrews, a person who's very, very familiar with Jewish custom, tradition, religious rituals, a sacrificial system, the author of this book, there's speculation who it might be, okay? But what it comes down to is only the person who wrote it and God knows, right? We just don't know. Although, I had a class called Hebrews in seminary. My professor went to Oxford. This was the book of his life study. I mean, he was an expert in this book. And he went, like the first day of class, and he wrote, here are all the people... Uh, that others think may have written this book. And he, he wrote their name down, and he gave the arguments for and arguments against. And he said the very last one. He said, okay. He goes, now here's the person I think wrote it. And he thinks a man named Barnabas wrote it. A Levite, a Jew, familiar with the sacrificial system, Hebrew customs. Anyway, that was who he thought. But he said, in the end, no one really knows for sure. Okay, But the reason he thought Barnabas may have written it is because it's written to a distinctly Jewish audience with someone who understands the Levitical system, but also it's full of encouragement. It's a pastoral letter. And the thrust of the letter is this. Persevere in your faith. Christ is the fulfillment of all that the law, all that the prophets, all that the sacrificial system pointed to 
Christ is the fulfillment of that, and he is superior to all of that. Now, it's likely this was written to the Jewish community in Rome. In around 40 AD, there was persecution that began under Emperor Claudius, and uh, eventually he cast the Jewish community out of Rome. We read that. We know that uh, Aquila and Priscilla, they what were from Rome, they had left Rome when the emperor had cast all the Jews out, and they ended up in a town called Corinth, and that's where they met the Apostle Paul. So they would have been a part of that. So it began in around 40 A.D., but it kind of had its peak in about 49 A.D., okay? And these were Christian, or if you will, Jewish followers of Jesus or of the way, all right? It was known as the way. And in this passage, the author makes reference to the way, a new and a living way uh, of life and of access to God. So the author of Hebrews is writing to these Jewish converts to following Jesus those who have suffered great persecution, those who are having a difficult time, those who are going through adversity and trials. And he's writing them, he's saying, in other words, don't turn back, don't go back, don't leave something that you found is superior to everything else that you know about. Don't turn back to the old way. Stay faithful in your faith and follow Jesus. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. You've already encountered great difficulty. You're going to encounter more difficulty but hold fast. Hold on to Jesus. Don't turn away. And as we read, beginning in verse 19, he says, Brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, he's, he's pointing to the Jewish sacrificial system on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people in the nation. And he would go into the holy place, but there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. That is the presence of God himself. And that one day a year he would go and he'd offer sacrifice, right? But it was only good for a year because the next year he'd have to do it all over again. And there was all the ritual sacrifice that took, for, that took place all the other days of the year. The author is saying here, listen, you have confidence to enter into the very presence of God, the place where only the great high priest could enter to previously, you now can enter to. You have the ultimate connection with God himself. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is the great high priest, and not only that, but the sacrifice for our sins, through his shed blood on the cross, his flesh that was, what, torn, the veil that separated the actual dwelling place of God from the people was torn in half. And now you have direct access to God. There's no longer a barrier because of what Jesus did. And so you can have confidence in that. Now, is that important for people to know that are going through persecution and difficulty? You bet it is. Is it important for them to remember that? You bet it is. And so that's how he starts out. But then he goes on to say, it's by a new and living way for us through the curtain, making reference to the veil of the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the actual dwelling place of God in the tabernacle, right? Through his body. And of course, you might remember 
when Jesus died on the cross and he uttered the words, it is finished, it says the veil in the temple was what? Torn. Signifying through his sacrifice that separation because of our sin and our uncleanness, our unholiness, that was removed, that barrier between God and man, and now man could have direct access to God. People of faith, men and women of faith. Very symbolic. And of course, that's pointing to the superiority of Christ. Now they've been familiar with all this because they had been and were Jewish people, but they're followers of Jesus. Then he says this, and since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, then he's going to go into several exhortations, encouragements. One thing I do want to mention, where he talks about entering into that holy place, being having direct access of God through a new and living way, that is exactly what Jesus is talking about in John fourteen six. Write that down. That correlates to this passage. Jesus says, I am the what? Way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by who? By me. And unlike an animal that would have been sacrificed, it's dead. Jesus was resurrected. He is the resurrected living Lord who has created a new and living way that people can have access to God. The ultimate connection. Man, think about that. Do you have God on speed dial? Yes, you do. The scripture says so. Because of what Christ did for us, we have direct access, immediate access to God. We can, we can enter into His presence. It's a wonderful thing. So then He comes with a series of exhortations. In other words... In light of all this, don't turn back. Don't give up. Persevere. Continue on. What's he doing? He is encouraging them, isn't he? Okay? He says this. He says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart full of assurance. Then verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. I think of that. I think of the e-ticket. I think of the Matterhorn bobsled. How you just had to hold on, man. It's a ride. It's a thrill. And there are times when you, when I remember thinking to myself, what am I doing on this ride? This is more than I can take and I'm just holding on for dear life. That's the imagery here that the author of Hebrews is giving to the readers. To, to those Jewish community. He's saying, hold on to your faith. Don't let go of it. Hold fast to it. It's better than anything, anything you've ever experienced. And Christ is the fulfillment of all that you've hoped for and believed in. Hold on. Don't let go. But hold on to the hope you profess. For He who promised is faithful. Ultimately, we're not holding on to hope, but we're holding on to the one who is the object of our hope. Do you see that? And he's holding on to us. And let us consider now 
how, verse 24, we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Have you thought about that today? Did you come to church this morning saying, I want to consider how I can spur my neighbor, the person on my right or left, in front or behind, on to love and good deeds? I'm coming to church with a mission. That's the attitude we need to have when we come to church. Because we got the e-ticket, we get the thrill of encouragement. Man, that's good stuff. Verse 25, not giving up, meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. That day is the day of Christ's return. I say it frequently. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again. It's saying we need to spur one another on in love and good deeds. And all the more we need to encourage each other as we see the day of Christ coming, drawing near. That's what he's saying here. And we need to encourage ourselves in the promises of God, in the truth, in the hope, in the certainty that God's going to deliver everything he's promised to us. And that's made possible through a new and living way that He made possible through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's good stuff. So this whole letter in this passage in particular is about persevering in faith. And how are we going to do that? Through encouraging one another, cheering one another on, spurring one another on in love and good deeds. That's what we're called to do. And that's what the author of Hebrews is exhorting. Now, where do we see an example of someone like that in the Scripture? Well, there's plenty of examples. But in honor of my late seminary professor who taught me the book of Hebrews, I want to point out Barnabas. Barnabas exhibits five qualities of an encourager. Five qualities. Now, there are more, but there are five that we see right in the book of Acts as we become familiar about Barnabas. I want to just share those with you briefly. Number one, encouragers give freely of themselves and their resources for God's purpose. Let's read this verse. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. We read about that in Acts chapter 2. We read about that in Acts chapter 4. But there were those of means that wanted to fund. They wanted to financially encourage the work of the gospel in Jerusalem. So they took assets, they liquidated them, and they wanted them used for the sake of the gospel. Okay? I remember one Christmas Eve at a very large church I was a part of. I thought I would kind of play a joke. I wrote a a check to put in a little basket. And I think I wrote it for like $20,000. And I put the name Rob Banks. And on the address, I filled in the address to Folsom Prison. But they wouldn't have known that unless they knew the address of Folsom Prison. Rob Banks, Folsom Prison, check for $20. And I was really testing to see if anyone in the finance department was... It was a test, a forensic test, an accounting test. But little that I know, I thought that would shake some people up, right? 
Well, they caught it, and they traced it back to me. But little did I know, on that same Christmas Eve, a man who was an employee of Intel gave a gift of a million dollars in Intel stock to the church. Incredible. I mean, I can't even imagine that. Can you? Being in a place to do that. But he did. I mean, it's like unbelievable. Why? Because he wanted to give of himself and his resources for God's purpose. He wanted to encourage the church, the work of the church, financially. Now, imagine this, Barnabas. It was a nickname given to him. He was so encouraging that they gave him the name. His real name was Joseph, but they called him Barnabas. He's a real son of encouragement. Right? They'd see him coming. Hey, there's the son of encouragement. There he is. There's Barnabas. Imagine that being your nickname. And so, one characteristic is encouragers freely given themselves and their resources for God's purposes. The second one is encouragers accept others where they are with an eye to where they are being led by God or where God is leading them. Now, this is very interesting. Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9 comes to faith. He was a great persecutor of the church. He's later to become the great apostle Paul. But when People were hearing about him. They were suspect of him. And it says here, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. It would be like Osama bin Laden saying, I'm a follower of Jesus now. Let me come to your church and preach the gospel. I mean, is that dramatic, right? This is the great persecutor of the church. He held the people's cloaks while they stoned Stephen, the first martyr of the church. He's the one whose life's been transformed with this encounter with Jesus. And they don't believe it. They're suspect. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told him how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved freely about in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of Jesus. You know what encouragers have the ability to do? They have the ability to look and see see someone. And as they look at that person, they can see what God's doing in their life. And they see where they are right now. But they also see where God is leading them. And they want to be a part of that. And they want to encourage them in that. Men's Bible study, Aaron. I remember I went to my first men's Bible study in a church, and I'll never forget the leader was going to Montana. His father was sick, and he said, I need someone to fill in for me next week. Todd, I want you to do that. I didn't know how to lead a Bible study. I didn't know what to do. I went to him during the week. I asked him what I should do and how I should do it. He says, don't worry about it. Just do this. You're going to be fine. Years later, after I joined the church staff, I said, what did you see in me? He said, I saw God in you. I saw gifts and ability that you didn't see in yourself. And I was led to call on you. Well, years later, I'd be the leader of that men's Bible study. Because someone saw in me, they saw in me what God was doing. They accepted me where I was, but they had an eye to where God was leading. The third thing of an encourager is encouragers are catalysts for spiritual growth. Encouragers are catalysts for spiritual growth. Why? Because it's a thrill 
to encourage someone to growth and maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's a great thing. And they're catalysts for spiritual growth. Acts 11, 22 through 24. This is a little bit later. Now, news of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. The church in Antioch. Antioch, there's a church growing. There's this, this thing that's happening and the Holy Spirit is moving and people are coming to the Lord. Word of that gets to the leaders in Jerusalem. So who do they send? They send Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them to remain true with all of their hearts. You know what? One of the great thrills for me as your pastor is when I see evidence of the grace of God at work in your lives. And I get to encourage you in that. I get to. It's an honor. It's a privilege. It's exciting. Man, every day I get an e-ticket. I get the thrill of encouragement. But here's the good news. You get the same thing. You get the same opportunity. As you look around, as you're in tune to the Spirit of God, and you see the Spirit of God working in people's lives, you should be glad and encouraging and just say, press on, brother or sister. Press on into Jesus. Encouragers are catalysts. And then it says this about him. Check this out. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Undoubtedly through his encouragement. Through his encouragement. So the first three. Encouragers give freely of themselves and their resources for God's purpose. Encouragers accept others where they are with an eye to where God is leading them. Encouragers are catalysts for spiritual growth. Number four, encouragers recognize and meet spiritual need. You want to encourage Dana today? Say, you know what? When I saw Isaiah up here today, my heart was moved by God. I want to get involved. I want to see him grow up to be a man of God. Dana, I, show me what I can do. Would that encourage you, Dana? Yes. Yes. Okay. So that she had to sit at her desk every Thursday making phone call, phone call, phone call, trying to find someone that will help facilitate a children's Sunday school class. I'd love for there to be a list of people, a waiting list. Because they want to be encouragers. They want to recognize and meet critical needs. That's what Barnabas did. Check this out. When he saw what was going on in Antioch, he encouraged the people. Then he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That's the Apostle Paul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And look what they did. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Okay? How did it start? A move of the Holy Spirit that was recognized and encouraged by someone. And who recognized and met the critical need and spent a year there discipling. And then finally, I love this. Encouragers give others a second chance. You see, with an encourager, failure isn't fatal. It's an opportunity to see someone grow and learn and mature. Now, sometime later, after the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back and visit all the believers in the towns where we preach the word of the Lord, seeing how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark. That's John Mark. 
Barnabas was John Mark's cousin. The early church in Jerusalem met in John Mark's mother's home. Okay? There's the connection. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them and had not continued with work. On the first journey, for some reason, we don't know why, John Mark turned away and left and abandoned Paul and Barnabas. So Paul says, I don't want him with me. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers of the Lord of grace, right? So here is this person, John Mark, identified by Paul as the one who had abandoned, who had failed on that first journey. He didn't want him to go on the second journey. Barnabas felt so strongly about him that he says, listen, I'll take him with me. And look what happens later. In 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11, Paul is getting ready for execution. His days are numbered. People have abandoned him. And look what he says here. He says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark. That's John Mark. Get him. And bring him with you because he is helpful to me in ministry. Paul didn't want to take him on that second missionary journey, but in the last days of his life, who did he call for? Why? What was the difference? It was Barnabas. It was the encourager, the son of encouragement. And so here's the question for each of us as we come to the close of our sermon. Are we going to tear in half our e-ticket and waste it and throw it to the floor? And forfeit the thrill and the experience that the e-ticket entitles you to? Are we going to value it? And are we going to use it? Are we going to see it as the thrill of a lifetime? To be a part of what God is doing in the life of a person. What God is doing in the life of persons. What God is doing in the life of his church. What God is doing in the life of a community. What God is doing in the life of the world. And you get the thrill of being an encourager. Everyone can do it. You see, the truth is, everyone can give freely of themselves and their resources for God's purposes. Everyone can accept others where they are with an eye to where God is leading them. You know what? In some Bible study, or maybe even in children's ministry, there's a little boy or a little girl, or a man or a woman or a teenager, that someday is going to lead a church. And all they need is someone to come along and encourage them. To see what God is doing. Are you going to be a catalyst for spiritual growth? Are you going to encourage people to grow and to press on into the Lord? Are you going to recognize and meet critical needs? Or are you going to turn a blind eye and hope that somebody else does it? And are you going to give others a second chance? Are you going to look for people who maybe didn't do so well the first time, but stand beside them and help them the second and the third time, and then watch them succeed? Because you know that failure doesn't have to be fatal. It's just a step on the path of growth and to maturity in Christ. But the difference between that and failure is the person, the encourager, that comes alongside. As the worship team comes forward this morning, I pray that the Spirit of God challenges you in these things. And if we're known for nothing else, 
that when people come to community covenant church, they come and say, what an encouraging place to be. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we are to hold unswervingly to the hope that you've given us, that we're to draw near to you with confidence, that we are to spur one another on in love and good deeds, and all the more encouraging one another as the day that your son's return draws near. And Father, today I pray that your Holy Spirit would move and stir in our hearts, that when someone looks at us and sees us coming, they'd say, hey, there's Aaron, that son of encouragement. There he is. Or there's Kim, that that daughter of encouragement. There she is. That this place would be such an encouraging place. Lord, that people would be excited about all that you're doing and excited because they have the opportunity to be a part of it. Father, direct our hearts. Open our eyes. Prompt us to be involved. And above all else, to be encouragers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.